So we're here we are. We're in Romans chapter 3. We're popping in at verse 21. We are absolutely doomed, we found out, right? Um, I'm not actually trying to be funny, but that's basically where we were at. Uh, because the whole um, chapter 1, uh, from verse 18 on, the wrath of God is being revealed against all of mankind because of their wickedness. He talks specifically about the Gentiles, the nations. He talks about the Jews. And then he recaps all of that in chapter 3. And up until this point, other than one little brief ray of sunshine in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For a righteousness of God is being revealed... Um, through from faith to faith and so on, that sort of one little ray of sunshine, we have been through some pretty bleak territory here. And so in verse 21, finally, it's like the sun comes out again. This, this first blinding light from a crack of an opening door, and now, but now, but now, and everything changes. <clears throat> Over and over and over again in the scripture, you have those words, but God. All of these things happened, but God. And you have that again and again where he just takes the situation at its lowest and he turns it around and God begins to change everything. Let me just read the the section to you first so we hear the whole thing. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He, God the Father, did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. In our absolute most desperate moment, 
God came through. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the fullness of time, Christ came. At just the right time. So, here we are in this hopeless situation. And hope comes not from some corner of the earth. Not from some man, from some philosophy, from some religion. But it comes from heaven. We were absolutely hopeless. And the hope comes from the very corner that we might have expected our doom. Here comes not our doom, but our rescue. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The righteousness of God has been made known. Hope, hope finally is here. He saves the ones, us, who have made themselves thoroughly unworthy of being saved. Like if we just dropped in at chapter 3, verse 21, we might think, well, that's very nice of God. But if we've really read and understood and digested Romans 1 and 2 and the first part of 3, we have a, a much greater appreciation of what Jesus did for us, about what the Father did for us. And as we'll see, this had its origin in the heart of God from eternity past. This wasn't sort of some plan B, some emergency mop-up when things went bad on the creation. This was something that God had in mind from eternity past. That he would show his justice and his mercy and that they would meet at the mercy seat, that they would meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. And here comes hope. And he does so without compromising his own righteousness. He's a masterful, masterful God that can somehow, in the counsels of eternity, figure out a way to remain just, completely just, and yet also justify us, his sinful fallen creation. The very people that we read about in the mess of chapter 1 and chapter 2. That the wrath of God was resting on these people, yet God in his incredible um, creativity is able to remain just while justifying these people who absolutely uh, had uh, broken his laws. He does so without compromising that. So here comes the light into this absolute pitch darkness. And I don't, you know, if you've been sort of, you know, looking at stars and you want to see stars, and you're out maybe downtown Calgary and you look up and you see the odd star. But you go out into the wilderness and you go out into the mountains, you get away from the light of all the light pollution and so on, you look up, suddenly the stars are much, much brighter. You look up and there's just a, why? Because in contrast to the darkness, the light is all the more bright. You've been in a dark room and your, and your eyes have completely adjusted to the darkness. And suddenly a light comes. It might not be that bright, but it suddenly seems blinding by comparison. And that's essentially what's happened here. If we've understood Romans 1, 2, 3, we understand the pitch blackness, the darkness of our situation. And now this blinding light 
of the mercy of God comes into that situation. And you begin to understand the Old Testament verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for them who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light is dawned. Um, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant uh, to restore just the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises on you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawning. And then Simeon, as he picked up the baby Jesus in his arms, uh, having been promised that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah, he picked up Jesus from Mary and Joseph and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the nations, and the glory of your people Israel. John writes about it, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I'll skip down. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then to us, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. I have made you a light for the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. For you were once darkness. He doesn't even say that you were in darkness. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Into this absolute blackness of our hopelessness and doom, Jesus comes as the light of the world. This incomprehensible love. Paul, overwhelmed, says on another occasion, thanks be to God for this indescribably precious gift conceived in the mind of God to take us from the greatest need to the greatest good at the greatest cost. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Hear that. God made him who had no sin to be sin. That boggles the mind. Not just that God put our sin on Jesus or that he died for our sin, but that he became sin. How can God, the holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, how can, how can such become sin? That is the depth of the identification that he took on the sin. He didn't just sort of wear it on the outside like a coat. It, it, he became sin. I don't understand what that means. He who had no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How did we, sinful people, become the righteousness of God? To the same extent that Jesus became sin. What an exchange! You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
For our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. What kind of God does this stuff? What kind of God does this stuff for his sinful creation, rebellious creation? What kind of God? So Paul prays in Ephesians that we with all others might grasp the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, the dimensions of the love of God that cannot be grasped. He said he's lost for words. I pray that you would (laughs) grasp the thing that can't be grasped. The dimensions of the love of Christ. Angels look at this and scratch their heads. They can't figure it out. They long to look into these things. They fold their wings. They, They sing holy, holy, holy. But the redemption song comes. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who by his blood has redeemed us from the and they just fold their their wings. They they don't know the song. They don't understand the song of redemption. Now, in the Kairos moment, the fullness of time, this this word for time, this but now, this Kairos is not just sort of when the certain year came. This is the appointed time when God meets time, when the eternal God comes to time and it's it's something deeply significant. And he says, now things are changing. And yet, it's not new. He says, yes, in this time, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God has been manifest. But it says, it's not brand new, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, this is totally in line with what the Old Testament has been teaching. But now it's been revealed in this incredible way. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who exercise faith. This righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Christ to all, but only to those who believe. There's no other distinction that matters. On account of our faith, there's no merit involved. So the righteousness of God is being revealed to all who believe. So God is saying there's something special going on. So Paul, writing just years after, just a few years after the historical event of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, can can say, just at this perfect time, God came into the world and it changed everything. And so now this righteousness of God, in the midst of all of the sin of mankind, the righteousness of God is beginning to shine. The righteousness of God is being revealed to all. There's no difference, there's no distinction is a better word, between Jew and Gentile. Well, obviously there's lots of differences between Jew and Gentile, particularly at that time, all kinds of differences you could come up with. But there's no distinction in this sense that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul has made that abundantly clear in the first chapters of Romans. All have sinned. There's no distinction in that way. The sin might look different. It might seem more blatant in one group than another. It might have different manifestations in one group than another. But all have sinned. So all of us, every person on the earth, There is none righteous, no, not one, Paul has already written. 
every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In this most important way, all are alike. All fall short of the perfect standard of God. All are actually, better translated, right now falling short. It's not that sometime in the past it happened, it's that it's continuing to happen. It's where we are. We are now falling short of the glory of God. People wonder a little bit at what that means, falling short of the glory of God. And it could mean a number of things. Probably best, it means we're falling short of the glory of God. In other words, of the perfection required for his approval. Adam and Eve, uh, when they were created, were created uh, in innocence. There was no sin in the Garden of Eden. And so they could walk unashamed, uh, of course with each other, but they could walk unashamed in the garden in the cool of the day. And God would walk with them, and they would just have this beautiful communion with God. Of course, when sin entered, that was broken. And, and that perfect fellowship with God was broken. And so the access to God was now limited. And the approval of God was no longer on them. God created Adam and created Eve and said, Good. That was, that's good. Very good. Beautiful creation. But then that, that changed. The access, the approval of God changed. So uh, the perfection that we used to have, we've fallen short of the glory of God. So we no longer have the access that we have. And we no longer have the approval of God. That's our situation as sinners. Now picture this uh, if you are a Jew in the Old Testament. Picture the situation if you're a member of the nation of Israel and uh, Aaron is your high priest. Moses is your leader, but Aaron is your high priest. And, uh, you know, we, we look at the book of Leviticus and we think, well, what possibly is there there for me? There's actually a whole lot there. If you want to really understand the holiness of God, understand uh, what, what it is uh, to be uh, right with God and purification and understand why um, it's so important uh, that there's uh, blood sacrifices and so on. You know, put your, put, your, uh, put your shoes on. I mean, you know, get, get serious and dig into the book of Leviticus and find out what it really says. But in there, there's a beautiful picture of this separation with God in the sense that, that there was always the sense that, that we've sinned, so what are we going to do about it? We need to bring a sacrifice, we need to bring an animal, and that life has to be sacrificed, and that that sacrifice will somehow atone for our sins, so we need to do that. But as a nation, once a year, and of course the, the, the Jewish nation, the, the Jews throughout the world still celebrate Yom Kippur, uh, every September, this Day of Atonement. And the, the idea of this Day of Atonement, that it was on that day, the high priest, and only on that day, that high priest would go before the Lord and he would enter into the holy place. He would go into that holy of holies. And if he went in any other day, he, he was done. He was dead. But on that one day, he could go in and the smoke had to be there to sort of cover over this Ark of the Covenant, to cover over uh, so that, it, it says specifically, so that he won't die. So they would actually tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest in case things went south. And uh, nobody could go in there and get him out, so they had to kind of pull him out. And it was no laughing matter. I mean, if you went in there, you, you, were, 
really had to know you were in the presence of a holy God, you could only go in once a year. First of all, you had to sacrifice for your own sins, because as a high priest, you were a sinner. And then you had to sacrifice for the nation. And you'd go in and you would do that. And this mercy seat, this cover of the Ark of the Covenant, was where God met the high priest on that occasion. And if that sacrifice was received by God, then, then the nation was, was forgiven for another year, their sins were covered. All of the time they were thinking, I wonder how long this is going to go on. How long do we have to do this? Year after year after year after year. Not knowing the extent to which this was pointing ahead to uh, an ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual ultimate high priest who would once and for all deal with sin. Read the book of Hebrews and understand the depths of what God went through. So all of that, that mercy seat, very, very important concept, that lid, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, that place where God met, where God's justice and God's mercy met with his people. And so there was a veil in that uh, you went through as the high priest only once a year into that holy place. So when they built the temple, either Solomon's temple or, or the temple of Herod that was around when Jesus was, was around, they had this same sort of pattern. You had the, the court of the Gentiles where the nations could go. You had the court of women, and then you had the court of the Israelites, and then, then you had the holy uh, place, and you had the holy of holies, and, and, and same thing. The high priest went once a year, same deal. And it says that when Jesus died on the cross, that that veil was ripped from top to bottom. God making it absolutely clear that things were different now. That that access that had been once a year, high priest only, good luck to you kind of deal, was now ripped and that there was this immediate and complete access to the presence of God. And so the book of Hebrews has that incredible thing. We don't have a high priest um, you know, who's unsympathetic, but we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in every way. Therefore, we can come boldly before the presence of God. Why? Because he's our man. The high priest, Jesus, is our man before God. He is our representative, just as he is God's representative to us. And so we have this perfect access to the Father now, restored because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but we're all justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Caution. If you take a verse all by itself without a context or don't compare it to the rest of Scripture, you can get yourself into trouble. You can read verse 24 and you can read it to say that everyone, all have sinned, all are justified. Is Paul become a universalist? Not likely. Not if we read him and understand him. Okay, so then what we have to do is understand that probably the verse 23 is like a parenthesis. And he's really going back to 22. This righteousness is given through Jesus Christ to all who believe and all are justified freely by his grace. In other words, all who believe are justified freely by his grace. So, just as all have sinned, all who are justified are done so freely by His grace. There's no other way to be justified. So we need to be very careful to be honest with Scripture and not just take one verse out of its context. All are alike. The veil is ripped. All who exercise faith. 
And this is the first time that the word justify is used in the book of Romans. It's, it's the theme of the book of Romans. And finally, he's coming to his main theme, is, is to understand this idea of justification through faith. Now, understand this term, okay? You with me? Because you, you, you really got to follow Paul in his argument here, okay? So make sure you've really got your minds around this. This is a forensic term, a legal term, all right? For the moment, we are in a court of law. We're going to later on be at a slave market. We're going to later on be at a temple as far as his, his pictures are concerned. But right now, we're in a court of law, okay? And so justification is a legal term in that we are declared righteous by faith. So though we were sinners, we were all sinners, the wrath of God was upon us, we were hopelessly lost, through faith in Jesus Christ, which in itself was a gift, so certainly no ability there to think we're special, through faith in Jesus Christ, we received the righteousness of God, and we were declared legally righteous before God. We were justified. If you justify a margin, it comes into line. It's brought into line. We were declared righteous. We were not, this is important, we were not made righteous. We aren't suddenly perfect or perfectly holy. I think we're all painfully aware of that. But we were declared righteous, and there's a huge difference. So as far as our legal standing is concerned, we are immediately declared righteous the minute that we have faith in Jesus Christ. The minute that we place our faith in Him for our salvation, we are declared righteous. Then, our life is the process of bringing our lives into um, harmony with what God has already declared about us. That's called sanctification. That's a gradual process of holiness. But we are declared righteous, justified. Someone has said, and it's, it's simple, but it does say something. That justified means that it's just as if I had never sinned. As far as God is concerned, he has declared us to be righteous. He's brought us into line. He's accepted us by faith. It's the exact opposite of condemnation. We are acquitted of our sins. We are pardoned. It is our status, not necessarily our condition every minute, but it is our status before God, reckoned to be righteous. Our guilt was placed on him. His righteousness was placed on us. And notice who it is that does this. It is God the Father who does this. Okay? So we're brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who is well-pleasing. So God sees us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, once and for all. Um, I grew up sort of with the legend of this man, Don Whiteside, and uh, I, I knew him uh, quite well, but, he, um, but his story was just always amazing to me. He was, a, um, uh, an arm, he was uh, arrested for armed robbery. Uh, armed, I don't know if there was uh, shooting involved or just what all the crime was, but it was a very, very serious crime, obviously, and he was put in jail for this crime. While he was in jail, another man that I knew led him to Christ, and it was a true conversion where this man really became uh, a, a Christian, totally sold out. His life was absolutely 100% changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and to the extent 
that when he was released from prison, he felt called to be a missionary in Colombia. And so he prepared for that. Now, you've got a problem. What's the problem? How are you going to get out of the country with a criminal record, right? So, um, long story short, um, he appealed this and went before a judge, and people came and spoke about the transformation in his character. And he was granted the first ever in Canada Queen's Pardon. And so he was then able to serve for many years as a missionary in China. He was uh, at our cottage, actually, in, in, uh, in June with his family there. Um, he's, uh, you know, an older man now, um, I think 80 or something now. But he spent many, many years as a missionary in, uh, in Colombia. He did that because he received a pardon from the Queen. And so, therefore, his record was completely wiped out. He said one time he actually went down to the Office of Records to just sort of, he was curious, and just sort of went down and said, could I, could I just pull up sort of my, my record? Oh, well, I guess we can. So they just pulled it up and said, well, I'm sorry, there's really not much here. They just kind of pulled something out, and it was his name and whatever else, and it was just stamped pardoned. That was it. No record of his crime. It was as if it had never happened. Um, pardon. What an incredible example that is of us. It's as if all that stuff never happened. Now, don't think of it, well, it's only the stuff before we actually became a person, but all the stuff after, boy, we're going to answer for that. No, God sees the whole picture, all that we've done, all that we've yet to do. He sees all of that as one. It's all been put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified as if it had never happened. We are declared righteous. It's pardoned. It's over. It's done. It's done freely as a gift without payment. You see that in, in, in the verse. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, verse 24. All who are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's done freely, without payment, without merit. Paul couldn't make this more clear. There's nothing that we bring to the table in this exchange. We, have, we don't bring... Even, even the slightest little bit to the table. We have absolutely nothing to bring to this exchange. It is all freely given by God. There is no reason in us. He doesn't look down and, and see me and say, well, there is that one little bit of goodness there, so I think I'll take it, I'll take him, and say there's nothing in us at all that sort of attracts him to us and says, ah, there's a good candidate for redemption. There's nothing. So this reason must exist only in the person of God. There must be something in the person of God that says, I want to redeem. It must exist in him. All the motivation is supplied by him. All I ever did was to compel a different outcome in my life. This grace, same word, base word as joy, same base word as thanksgiving, all of that. So grace is free, but it's not cheap. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is free, but it is not cheap. It came at huge cost. Well, that's the whole picture of justification. And he talks about redemption. Well, now we're kind of in a slave market. I mean, the picture of redemption, what you did, is if you got yourself in, into slavery or whatever, someone could come along and could buy your freedom. So they could come along and say, well, this person is a slave, that's their status, but for a certain price, I'll pay his 
redemption. I'll, I'll ransom him from slavery, and he will now be free. That's the picture here. The payment of the ransom in Jesus by God. God paid the ransom. God the Father paid the, the ransom for us. And it says it's in Jesus Christ. He continues to embody it, and it releases us from bondage. Be very careful with that picture, because it is but a picture. God redeems us from slavery through the price of his own son, but he pays the price, as it were, to himself. Be very careful that you don't picture Jesus paying a price to Satan. That is not a biblical picture. It's not that somehow Satan owned us, and God had to somehow come up with the cash to pay off Satan. That is a, a non-biblical concept. So don't ever see it in that light. But rather, God the Father, in His goodness, decided to ransom us with the price of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm saying these words, but like, listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying, that for this worthless sinner, me... He took his own son and paid that price for me. It just, it absolutely boggles my mind. You can't make this stuff up. There's just no God like this. You can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable. Another picture you've got to kind of get out of your heads is this idea that somehow the father was reluctant. But the son kind of came along and, and said, well, you know, what do you think? Why don't we do this? Well, I guess so, if you want to. That is not the picture. Rather, the origin of this redemption is in the heart of the Father. Understand that as the biblical picture. Now, if I've already been pronounced justified, then that's already happened, then there's no works that I can do to add to that. Because it's already happened. I'm already justified at the moment that I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't then have to sort of come up with some more. And sure, good thing. Because otherwise, how much is enough? If it's a case of, I'll try to be good enough for God. How do I know when it's enough? How do I know, what if I do my best? I'll do my best. Well, but I don't always do my best. And even if I did, would it be enough? Thank God that he did that. Now look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the special word, and that's why we went into all this, for the mercy seat. It's the same word as that covering of the ark. So high priest went in, covering of the ark, that, that meeting place. So now God presents Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Hey, that's a change. Because this covering of the ark, who saw that? One high priest once a year. Pretty mysterious stuff. Now, God the Father is showing everyone public display of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before everybody, scoffers, world, the whole thing. There he is, in public display. He's demonstrating, he's presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as this mercy seat through the shedding of blood, through the taking of his life, to be received by faith. God the Father initiating this work. Jesus designed in the counsels of God to be the one through whom salvation would come, presented and purposed, set uh, before God and before us, this propitiation, this mercy seat, this sacrifice. 
The word propitiation, that's not a word we use every day, but it's a very, very important word. It means to take away the wrath of God. And some commentators are so uncomfortable with that that they, they try to make another word and they use words like expiation that kind of means uh, turning, uh, you know, taking the sin away. But it's much stronger than that. This is the idea that the wrath of God was resting on us and that God took that wrath off of us and put it onto his son and that was the propitiation, the turning away of wrath that it was removed from us onto this voluntary offering. Jesus bearing the wrath of God, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, Year after year after year, the high priest went in and he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, not knowing what it meant. But it was looking ahead to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ when his very life blood would be shed for us. This mercy seat, God meets us there in mercy. What a beautiful picture it is in Leviticus uh, uh, 16. So they would uh, have all the sacrifices and the high priest would go in, but they'd also bring these two goats and they'd draw lots and one goat would be uh, sacrificed. The other goat, though, the high priest would lay his hands on this goat and, and the picture was that he was laying the sins uh, upon this goat and the goat was then sent off into the wilderness. It's called a scapegoat, where we got that expression. And so, that this again, this whole idea of laying the sins onto the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Beyond the removal of sin, it's the appeasement of wrath, and it's made effective through faith. Again, we bring nothing to the table. Why do I through all this? Because if we underestimate his wrath, we underestimate his love. If we don't really get how serious our situation was, and how the wrath of God was, was resting on us for our sins, then we're going to be blasé about the love of Christ. We're not going to understand the love of God. We're not going to understand just how powerful how amazing that love is. He goes on. He did this. God the Father did this. He presented the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He did this. Why? To demonstrate his... What do you expect it to be? To demonstrate his what? What do you expect it to be? Love. His love. His mercy, right? No. It says to demonstrate his justice. What? He did the cross to demonstrate his justice? Why? Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Really? He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You know, sometimes we kind of got to get God's perspective on this thing. We talk a lot about ours, and we're so happy that our sins are forgiven, and that's great. But we need to kind of get a little bigger picture here. And kind of get up over the thing and look at this from God's perspective. And that's kind of what we're doing here. He did this for a whole lot of reasons, but he did this to demonstrate his justice. Why? Because for centuries, people have been sinning away. In and outside of Israel. Sinning away. And to a great extent, God had left those sins unpunished. Certainly on occasion, there were times when particular sins were punished. But it was the exception, and it certainly wasn't to the extent uh, of the wrath of God that was on them. So, someone could look at that and go, God, you are unjust, because these people sinned, and you didn't do anything about it. And God would say, ah, but wait. 
because I fully intend to do that. I am, at the moment, showing patience. I'm waiting because I have a plan. You don't know what it is, but I have this plan from eternity past. So I remain just because I know that those sins will be laid on Jesus Christ. I know that that will happen. Nothing will stop that. That is in the counsels of God, determined in the counsel of the Trinity from eternity past. So because of that, I remain just in not immediately punishing those sins right now as they happen. Ain't that a good thing? Because otherwise I would have no chance to repent. Isn't it good that there is that patience and forbearance of God? So he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So now this side of the crucifixion. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, a lesser God could not have pulled that off. To have remained just and also be the justifier. And he does both. So he remained just through all of history um, till then when he did not judge sin as it happened and this forbearance that the sins would be covered in the future on the cross. So he was, he is, and he will be just. So he is just and the justifier. He is qualified to be the judge to this person of faith. Now, it's interesting that in verse 26, he just uses the name Jesus. I've already made a point of the fact that Paul very rarely does that. He always says Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ. Very rare that he says Jesus. So what is his emphasis if he says Jesus? Why does he do it? What is he emphasizing about Jesus? Yeah, his human life, the, the historic events of his life. So through faith in the historic events of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. His justice was satisfied. His wrath was avenged. In Christ it was. How rich this is that justice and mercy meet perfectly and undiluted at the cross. we got to get our heads around that. The mercy of God, the love of God, is absolute. I can say, God is love. That's what John says. He is love. And not just he's loving or some days he's loving or, you know, you get him on a good day. He is love. I can also say that God is holy. That God is a consuming fire. So apparently, since he's everything that he is, he is to the absolute. Apparently, he's those things undiluted by each other. You see what I'm saying? So he's full love. He is full righteousness. He is full holiness. To the max. Eternal. uh, uh, To an infinite degree. And they're undiluted and they meet in perfect harmony at the cross. Without dilution. He's no less holy. He's no less loving. He is full in those attributes. They don't dilute each other. That's why we can say that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's why it doesn't work to have a sentimental God. Well, you know, I can't really see God doing this. Can I recommend, um, uh, I should send it out. Um, Chan, what's his first name? Francis. Francis Chan. Let me, I want to send out this clip to you. It's about eight minutes long of Francis Chan talking about this. 
and it's it's really really powerful. But but this idea that sort of you know as soon as we say, well, I can't really see God doing this, we are placing ourselves in a really dangerous place where somehow we're now judging God. We think we're qualified to do that. Not a good idea. But God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So he can forgive us, not sentimentally, like, oh, I feel sorry for these guys, but rather in perfect justice, he can do it. Because Jesus is our mediator. As our our representative man, he absorbs sin and judgment. As the representative of God, he confers mercy. And so at once, he vindicates his character and bestows his righteousness on us at the same time. God's justice matters to him, even if it doesn't matter to us. He can't let things go. He's not sentimental. He's patient, he's righteous, and those demands would be satisfied in time. Where then, verse 27, is boasting? Where then do we get off thinking that we have anything to bring before God, or any sort of thing that we ought to boast about in ourselves? If we have pride... There is absolutely no basis for it if we understand the cross. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Is it excluded by the law that requires works? No. It's uh, because of the principle or the law that requires faith. There's no value or merit to me that I can bring before God. We're all sinners. And once and for all, it's been absolutely banished. On what basis? On the basis of works? Hardly. That would just lead to more boasting, reflecting on my accomplishments. You know what? Once in a while, I get a little uncomfortable and ticked off, I think, with kind of the Christian's approach to marketing great speakers and music. And, you know, you see the CV, you see the, the, all the things the person's accomplished and how great they are. And, and they're always number one. Never does the number two artist come to the concert. Never does the second best in the world. They're always the best. The best Christian guitarist. The, the best whatever. The best speaker on this, whatever. No, never the second best. Never the third. It's always the best. We mark it with this great... Now, I mean, the person themselves may be humble, and this is just the, the way that they're written up in the thing. I'm not blaming them, but I think, you know, maybe we're, we're really missing the boat here. Because if we somehow have boasting, what do we have that we didn't receive? What do we have that God didn't give us? What talent do we have that we sort of drummed up ourselves? What, what money do we earn that somehow we deserve because, hey, we have these great abilities, but God gave them to us in the first place? How do we have the place? Where do we get off being proud now, I'm not saying a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment. That's God-given. We work hard and, and we accomplish something. We feel good about it. That's God-given. We say, thank God for giving me that ability. Thank God that I was able to do this. That's fine. That's totally... But to have a pride that I accomplished this is just flying in the face of the truth. To understand the law of faith brings utter humility because faith is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, that is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Whatever I've got that's good, I have received. I've earned nothing. So if we're going to boast, boast in the Lord. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from observing the law. What is faith? Faith is pure trust. It's commitment. 
to another. It's to the exclusion of self. It's self-renouncing, not self-congratulating. Is God the God of Jews only? In other words, he's, he's going on to say, hey, if, if we were saved in some other way by the law, then that would only work for the Jews. It wouldn't work for the nation. Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there's only one God. So what's his point? If there's the same God, it's the same way of salvation. There isn't one plan of salvation for the Jews and another one for the nations. It's the same God, so it's the same salvation. So if you're in Rome and you're getting this letter from Paul and you're listening to this, you're kind of looking around and a Gentile here and a Jew there and a Gentile there and a Jew there. And it's going, okay, I think I get it, Paul. I think you're, what you're saying here is that we're actually all the same. We're all one in Christ Jesus. You know what? That divide doesn't mean much to us anymore. You know, if you had a, a Jewish person sitting beside you in class, you might not see this great gulf between you. That doesn't mean much to us anymore. That's probably a good thing. But at the time, that was the biggest gulf you could imagine. But we have other cleavages in our society, in our nation. I mean, if you were in the U.S., I suppose you might talk about black and white, perhaps rich and poor, perhaps some ethnic divide, some denominational divide. And what you've got to realize is that God is the God of all people, that those cleavages, those, those um, divisions have all been broken down in Christ. So we come to Christ, and in Christ we are all one. So the person that drives you nuts, or that, I mean, whatever, fill in the blanks, you've got to see that God is their God too. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? He's their God, too. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. He's going to say a lot more about that later. But he's basically saying, so I've said a lot of things the law doesn't do, but it does have great value. This is thrilling. John Bunyan said this. It was as if I heard God say to me, this is when he read Romans 3, he said this, it was as if I heard God say to me, to my deeply troubled, guilt-ridden soul, sinner, you think that because of your sins I cannot save your soul? But behold, my son is by me, and upon him do I look, and not upon you, and I will deal with you according to how I am pleased with him. A Roman poet was trying to tell playwrights at the time that they were overusing the device Deus Ex Machina. You know what that is? It's basically in their plays, they kind of, every time they had a problem they couldn't figure out, they'd bring a god in and the god would sort of figure it out. And, that, and he was saying, you're really using this trick too often. And so don't use it unless you've got a god-sized problem that needs help from a god. Well, you know what? We got a god-sized problem here. We needed a God to come in and fix this one. And what a God did. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been forgiven of sin far worse than we can imagine. He says, I will remember it no more. It went to the account of my perfect Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know what? We've all been justified by faith. 
But having been justified by faith, we still carry around a lot of condemnation. Because we mess up. We've been declared righteous, but we've not yet been made righteous. That's a process. It's happening, but it's a process. And so much of our trouble as Christians is because we believe the lies of Satan as he throws the condemnation for our sins upon us. And we live in that far too much. And what we've got to begin to see, if we're going to keep on reading in Romans, is that all of that living under the weight of condemnation because of our sins is just playing into Satan's hands. And we really have to see ourselves as God sees us. He has declared us righteous. We can feel another way, but he has declared us righteous. He sees us through his Son. Does our sin matter? Of course our sin matters. Do we sin more that grace may abound? Of course not. We want to be more and more like Christ. We'll, we, we'll, we'll talk about that. But we've got to start by getting this condemnation off of us. It is a lie of Satan. And we live in that far too much. And we need to see us as God sees us. We are in Christ. We are justified. He has declared us righteous. He sees not us, not our sin. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. We've got to come boldly into the presence of God. And there is forgiveness. If anyone sins, let him confess his sin. That God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he therefore will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's no limit on that. We've got to understand that. We've got to understand that and see that we stand forgiven. That is our standing before God. That's why he did this. He knew everything he would do before you did it, before you were created. He didn't miss anything when he knew exactly what we would do, all the sins we would commit, when he said, I'm dying for those. It's all covered. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He is just when he justifies us. Remember that. He is just. He remains just when he justifies us because all of that was laid to Jesus Christ. All of that has been put onto Jesus Christ. All of the righteousness of Christ has been placed into our account. That is our standing. That's where we're at. Then we've got to live differently. With that off of us. We look with love and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, now with that freedom, I want to live for you. Bless you guys.